this podcast. My hat bad words because my daddy says words like sh, damn, and other bad words too much. Listener description is advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a podcast for dads where this dad talks about life, kids, and stuff. I am your host, Joe Shaw. And on today's episode, I've got book author Mr. Juan Vidal on the show, and he discusses his latest book, Rap Dad. And we do a great deep dive into a lot of different facets of his book, including why hip-hop has influenced him so greatly, how fatherhood has changed him, and a lot of personal struggles he's gone through all throughout his life, and uh, new stuff to look forward to on the horizon for Mr. Vidal. Uh, For those that may not know, he is a writer and cultural critic for NPR. His work has appeared in Vibe, Esquire, Rolling Stone, and GQ, among others. Rap Dad is his first book. It is by Simon & Schuster, and you can pick that up. We've got it in the show notes for you. Oh, and uh, I will actually go ahead and make this a bit of news. I do want to break this now. I feel this is as good a time as any. Something you may have noticed over the last couple of episodes is that I've been solo doing these detox episodes. And the reason for that is John and Galan have departed as co-hosts from the show. I am the one and only host at this time. And uh, it is something where although we wished we could have found a way to all continue in the same capacity as co-hosts. Ultimately, sometimes life just gets in the way and you need to forge a new path. So much like your favorite bands, uh, the Beatles, the Jackson 5, or possibly even NSYNC, uh, not every good thing lasts. So uh, John and Galan are still fierce supporters of the show. Galan is actually still remaining on in a producer capacity, but uh, for now they are bidding adieu to hosting duties, and uh, we will most likely hear them again on upcoming episodes further on down the line, but for now, you will just hear my voice. So that may have been a little bit more rambly and stumbly than I had intended it, but I wanted it to be raw and honest and from the heart, and I seriously cannot thank John and Galan enough for helping me get this dream started. Two years ago when I had the idea for this show, I didn't know what it would grow into or evolve into, and I owe a good deal of thanks to both John and Galan for helping shape it into the show it is today, and I'm excited to take it into even new directions moving forward. So now, with all of that said, enjoy the interview with Mr. Juan Vidal talking about his book, Rap Dad, right after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is noted author and father, Mr. Juan Vidal. Juan, thank you so much for being on the show today. 
My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So you wrote this really kick-ass book called Rap Dad. And I was, as I was kind of telling you about uh, before we got started, I stumbled upon this book. I saw one of my friends had shared it on social media. I did a deep dive and find out everything I could about this book. And then I instantly hit you up to try and bring you on because this book is just, it, it struck a lot of personal notes for me that I'm really excited to dig into. And I think our listeners and readers of your book will really appreciate and get excited about. So I'm excited to get going. That means a lot. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Um, so let me go ahead. I'm trying to figure out exactly where I want to start. So I think I'm going to, we'll just start kind of towards the beginning. You've got this really cool passage towards the beginning of your book where you talk about, uh, you actually specifically call out Public Enemy, rap group or hip hop group Public Enemy as the black version of The Clash. I thought that was a really cool and apt um, comparison between the two as far as culturally what they meant and also like musically and yeah. what they were trying to do. Uh, and you talk, you have a good portion about uh, Public Enemy, and, and I'll read just a little bit. Public Enemy was an impassioned artistic and social response to the Reagan era. A number of black and Latino families were living well below the poverty line and getting access to resources became increasingly challenging. So, you, you know, as I mentioned a second ago, you singled them out as the black version of the clash and how they were the impassioned artistic, uh, et cetera, social response to the Reagan era. Can you speak to how you feel Reagan's policies affected the world in which you were brought up in? Uh, yeah, well, I grew up, I grew up in, in Miami and in, in the South Florida uh, region and much like a lot of big cities you know in the country in the 80s and, and early 90s uh, Miami was very much plagued by uh, by drugs and you know the way that was basically changed changing the landscape of, of different communities um, you have shows like you know narcos and, and, yeah. and things like that right that love to kind of glamorize um, kind of a lot of these issues um in some ways and I'm, and I'm colombian i come from a you know both of my parents are colombian and so like that always kind of strikes a chord uh to be honest i, sure. I feel like um people when they, when they think of colombia that's kind of like what they think of first and foremost because people like pablo escobar and kind of the infamy that characters like that kind of um you know pretty much ran with and stuff so like yeah. when i think of like that era um it was it was the crack era and it was the time where Reagan was um, it was it was the war on drugs and it was kind of um, basically trying to put an end to these things but there was a lot of things kind of going on in the background that people didn't know about and that's what a lot of these shows and and stuff kind of tried to shine a light on right but as 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 far as like the Public Enemy being kind of a black version of the clashes I mean there was just like out, at a very young age even though I couldn't relate to everything they were talking about because I was so young there was just an anger to it and there was an angst that kind of resonated with me on a lot of different levels and being someone that grew up uh, in a community with, with a lot of fatherless young people and some of those were affected by drugs and, and kind of different issues that plagued these communities. I really, I just was drawn to it. I was drawn to um, just that anger. Um, and yeah. like, I felt like there was, and even growing up, I, I always felt like there was something to kind of, fight and rebel against right um and you know as you get older you kind of get a little more comfortable and you got a house and kids and a yard and you start to you know you gotta kind of keep a little bit of that anger inside of you. yeah so yeah like, yeah in the time of writing about this book i was thinking about just the effect that public enemy had on me as a kid 
and those are kind of the, some of the main issues um, that um, kind of were brought to the forefront when I thought about them and just the way that uh, I resonated with a lot of the stuff that Chuck D was rapping about, even if I didn't yeah. really understand it or didn't have the words to really describe what it was I was feeling. There was like these visceral reactions that his his lyrics and even Flavor Flav screaming and stuff <laughs> kind of resonated with me. So, and yeah. I th- I that's, think that's kind of what that portion's about. Yeah, and I, I I like that. I think that there's also this innate feeling when you're younger to, you know, to borrow Public Enemy's phrase, fight the power. You know, it just kind of, yeah, kind of. I think it's it's this moment in time in which you're you're you know coming of age, you're evolving, you're trying to be your own man, you're trying to strike out on your own, and you want to find a way to kind of channel that that anger and that passion and that gusto and. And I think you're right. I think Public Enemy came or like came out at the right time, right situations. It's interesting to me too, from the uh, looking at the Reagan era, and how there was a lot of broad sweeping generalizations of people of color or certain countries because of the fear and panic and war on drugs and this, that, and the other. That I, I feel is echoed in, in some ways today in this political climate and. And you talk a little bit about that towards the end of your book. You actually have this this really interesting passage where you're going on a cross-country trip and you're in the middle of, as you say, nowhere Kentucky. And yeah. you, your car breaks down. You go to approach uh, these kind of local Kentuckians at this gas station and you're not sure what to expect, but you're you're a man of color and, and you're here and you're not sure what you're going to get. And you talk about that these guys were super nice, but that you it could have been different one block over. And then you also point out that you, as a precaution, introduce yourself as John as though it was second nature. And so I want to kind of juxtapose that first part with the Reagan era by do you feel in this hostile climate uh, it's better for you to be John or Juan? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because when that happened, you know, I remember telling my wife and she just kind of laughed. And my wife is not she's not she's not Latin. And so at first. It was just strange for her. She grew up in the Midwest. It was not something that she was like used to like hearing, but yeah. it was something that just happened so quickly. My car breaks down. I'm in the middle of a place that um, in certain parts of that area, I may have been looked at a certain way, even though I'm not like um, of a certain dark complexion necessarily. Sure. I mean, I'm, I've been called like racially ambiguous. I've been right. you know mistaken for a lot of different things. Um, but just in that exact moment like my first reaction was just to somehow feel like i was protecting my family by not saying my name was you know juan felipe like it doesn't right. get more latin than that yeah. you know what i mean yeah, and yeah. so like it, it was it was strange to do that and it was even more strange that i didn't think twice about it, it just it just came out of my mouth um and yeah i mean we in, in the same on the same token the way that I grew up in in an era where there's a lot of just like fear mongering and and all that. There's a lot of that these days as well. And social media, obviously, I hate saying social media. I know, like, I know. I feel so old every time just, I say it's it. media. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the World Wide Web. Yeah. Uh, the kids these days. Know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's like we live in a time where we're constantly um, bombarded with these messages and with these stories that make us so fearful like i remember being being a kid and just going out and riding my bike or skateboarding and not coming back for hours and i'm eight years old nine years old like my my i have four kids you know and my two oldest are 10 and 8 and i can't even 
let them be outside for too long by themselves, right. you know, much farther than our cul-de-sac, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, it's a completely different time. Um, and a lot of that has to do with just the way that the news and and a lot of terrible things that happen, are they're so accessible and we see them every single day that it makes us just try to shield those people around us in entirely new ways. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I didn't even sit in a car seat. You know, like my mom jokes about that now. Like, I, I we'd be just be fighting in the background, like giving each other bloody noses in the back seat, no car seat, just acting insane. And like, I can't imagine that these days. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's just it's it's the culture of fear, and and there's just so much more information out there that you can't help but feel protective of the people around you. I guess in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I think it's it's also something where. You know, we and we've covered this a couple times on this show in various ways, but as far as political climate or uh, fear mongering or, or what have you, it, it, there's a lot that divides us as yeah. as as people, as Americans, and just as human beings. And and it, the only way in which we're going to come together is really what you reference, kind of right at the end of the book, where you talk about the only way for people to grow in empathy toward their neighbor is to listen put in the work, yeah. be willing to have their hearts and minds broken and opened. And I cannot speak like, I mean, that is so true. The best conversations I've had with people across the spectrum of views has been when we've just sat down, broke bread, had a drink and just yeah. hashed it out. And it, you know, I, I wouldn't say that everybody's thoughts or change or their views are going to be different versus like how yeah. they're voting or whatever. But, but you start to understand the why. Why, why do you have this fear? Why do you have this unrest? Why do you have this feeling or this uh, view that you've come to? And, and maybe you, by sharing, you know, by breaking bread with me, you understand a little bit more about where I'm coming from and we can work yeah. together. But it's, it's so hard when everybody's in an echo chamber and it's, it's hard to combat that. How do you, how do you try and bridge that gap in your, in your day-to-day life when you interact with people that may not be on the same wavelength as you yeah i mean it's it, it really all comes down to conversations you know it's so easy to 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 drag people on social media because yeah. they maybe they misspoke or they said something that uh, offended us but it's like if we're in the, if we're in the same room with that person and we're like you said breaking bread having a drink just having a conversation like we realize that we have a lot more in common than we have differently at the end of the day we all we all bleed. We all are affected by the same things. We all love our families. We all want the best um, for our, for our kids and our spouses and our, you know, and our families and friends and stuff. And at the end of the day, like, it really all comes down to the things that we have in common. And I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm on a daily basis. I live in Atlanta now, and it's uh, it's I'm from Miami. You know, that's where I, I grew up and stuff. Right. And I've been in Atlanta now for the, like the last year. And it's been um, a bit of a culture shock in the sense that the community I grew up in or the city I grew up in is very Caribbean. So, like, the Spanish people are from all different parts of Latin America. Um, the black people are from all different parts of, like, the Caribbean and, right. uh, and that kind of stuff. Where here, it's like there's not very many different um, countries represented as far as, like, the Latin community. Yeah. And then, like, the African-American community is just, like, like American black, like there's, you won't find like a lot of like Haitians or like Jamaicans. Oh, sure. You yeah, know, yeah. so for, for me, that was like a little bit of a culture shock when I first got here, even though I'd been to Atlanta, um, like for stints, um, in short periods 
like a lot of times um when you're here for a while you start to really like get in touch with the different communities and it's like where are we going to eat i really would really like some jamaican food right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and i you know give me that jerk chicken <laughs> yeah you, you find it but you got to look a little harder right. so um but it's again it just all comes down to just being a part of a community and kind of like injecting yourself into these conversations and and learning learning from people that are not like you right you know and and i think that that's that's the key that's what makes the world a better place not to sound like all oh, like hallmark, hallmark right right but like, <laughs> that's what it really give the world a coke but to. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it's it's a cheesy campaign but it, it's accurate in that like if you just share something with somebody then you can start the conversation but uh, but yeah i uh yeah. one thing i find that divides a lot of people especially down here in in dallas Fort Worth, texas where you're firmly in like the buckle of the Bible belt is what we used to describe it as, um, <laughs> is, is religion. And, and a lot of people are, you know, uh, they recognize the fact that America is founded on religious freedom, but when it's not their religion, they tend to bristle up at it. And, and I find that is one of the hardest gaps I have as a person in my day-to-day -day life with my friends and people I interact with. It's a big bridge I have to have to divide. And so I, I start tapping into what I feel because I'm a very spiritual person. And so I, mm -hmm. I feel, and, and your section and to the point I'm getting at to not bury the lead is you have this, this section in here where you talk about being invited to church and how you talked about you always felt like you'd seen the devil multiple times in in various manners growing up but this seeing everybody yeah. worshiping together and hearing people speak these words of power it was a very ethereal moment and you felt this is i'm i'm i've met the devil now i'm meeting god and it tapped into the spiritual part where you even talked later about you know for you it was always about words hip-hop artists were writing these really impactful, powerful words and, and poems. And you're also seeing a lot of that echoed in specific biblical passages too. So for me, when I'm trying to bridge that gap on a spiritual level, I try and tap into how I'm able to experience God or, you know, uh, tap into my spiritual essences. And, and what I'm getting at it here is how are you able to kind of bake in your spirituality into your interactions, your writings, what you do? I mean, Chance the Rapper, who you reference, and he's my yeah. one of my top three favorite rappers bakes got into his raps and everything he does and it's so cool just seeing him interweave that so i want to know kind of what do you take from those passages kind of take us through that journey and then also how do you yeah. weave all that into your day-to-day -day? yeah for sure i mean I, I didn't grow up in church um we, we'd go to you know catholic mass every now and then sure um and my mom would always say that our house was like a catholic house and stuff but it wasn't like something that was practiced all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I was messing up a lot and I remember being, uh, uh, like in high school and just some kids that I played basketball with and had a, like a mutual, uh, affection for like hip hop and, and sports and different things. And we had a lot in common. I remember they invited me to, to the youth group and I didn't think twice when I said, yeah, I'll go because it, it was like someone inviting you to the movies. You know? right. it, it was, <laughs> yeah. I didn't think of it as anything different. Yeah. It didn't feel strange at the time because I really had no concept of what like what is church youth group yeah was in this in this context because like these are like young people like sixteen seven you know seventeen years old uh, church I mean okay this sounds interesting you know I didn't right. really think too much about it and I remember walking in this room 
and there's just like a few hundred teenagers that like look like me or dress like me people i recognize i'm like yo like what in the world is this? This has no this doesn't look anything like the church i remember going to like a spanish service that's like four hours long right and you're just like dreading every moment of it you know so yeah. like from that from then on began you know a relationship with like these young people who became like my best friends to this day and you know a relationship with god and faith is a, is a big part of my life and stuff and and i and you know, as a writer and, and even as a book critic, I mean, I write for NPR and stuff. And, and every now and then, like when it comes or when I'm like spurred to, I try to inject some of that stuff in, you know, not necessarily in, in criticism in, of books or anything, but like in, in essays or whatever, like I've written stuff for NPR, like the power of hymns or, you know, just the beauty of that language. Like there's nothing like a beautifully wrought yeah. hymn, you know, just like that language, the power that it carries. And that's something that attracted me to church early on. Cause like you mentioned that, you know, that passage for me, it was, it was always about the words. Right. So in the same way that I was attracted to like public enemy and, and the anger and, and, and the words that were used, it, it was the same thing with like kind of those initial um, experiences in church where, where they were reading like these, um, you know, Proverbs and Psalms. And I was like, this is dope. Like this sounds like the Fugees or <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. you know, like, this exactly. sounds like, um, you know, like out, like early outcasts, or yeah. like Goody Mob, where like they would have like these interludes where like they're praying and like it's there's all this like spiritual imagery and biblical imagery and stuff. And I was, I was attracted to it, but I didn't understand some of those lyrics until I started going to church. And I was like, oh wow, like this is not actually a real originally a Goody Mob lyric. Like this is a song, right? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, you know, that they adapted in, <laughs> yeah. into one of their verses and stuff. So I started to kind of make those connections, um, and that's what really kept me kind of continuing going to church early on yeah um and then i just in, from that moment on i had like more personal experiences that were kind of more um kind of touching in, in, in more personal ways as opposed to just references to other art forms or whatever that's awesome you know um I, so yeah do you have a favorite hymn um there's this one actually called uh it is well with my soul. Oh, that's my favorite um, hymn. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's powerful because I, I can't remember the the name of the author that wrote it, um, but he wrote it after like his whole family died yeah. in like, a shipwreck. And he, it's yeah. like this really dark story, and it's like his wife and like I think daughters. Yes, like just a whole bunch of people. His whole family died. Yeah, and he wrote that hymn, and like I'll never be able to understand how you can write something so beautiful after such a tragedy like that. Yeah, it's giving me chills um, just but, just talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, um, so I mean, that's yeah. a really cool one. It is, and I think that a lot of great art comes from the grief and, and tragedy, and it's 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 a way for us to express our deepest feelings and yeah. and kind of try and make sense of it. And I think that's what. Uh, uh, what the 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 songwriter was i was trying to pull it up and I'll, I'll get it later if i don't get it before the episode i'll put it in the show notes for those that are curious but yeah, but yeah i uh side note uh my dad uh shout out to my dad cliff shaw he uh i made him a chance the rapper fan when i introduced him to <laughs> a track on coloring and this is my dad he can appreciate hip-hop but he's not i wouldn't call him a hip-hop fan and yeah, yeah. uh he uh he is a uh a pastor a reverend and uh, actually for a uh, local soccer team for FC Dallas. So uh, he's oh, been wow. with them since uh, 96, since the league started. So he uh, uh, has been there. 
And I said, hey, you got to check out Chance the Rapper. He's great. And I explained how he interweaves God. And he was like, what? And I sent him How Great Is Our God, which is actually a Chris Tomlin worship song that Chance <laughs> reworked for his album. Yeah. And he texted me when he got done. He was like, uh, this song is dope. I uh, need more of this guy. <laughs> did he say dope? Yes, he did. <laughs> he did. That's amazing. It's the first, yeah, first like, and last time he said Chance, it. <laughs> Chance the Rapper is, is, is kind of an anomaly because, like, you know, he, like, he'll just be talking about some ratchetness on one song. And right. And the next song is, like, How Great Is Our God. Check out you this know, Gucci belt. That's and that... <laughs> like, that's, yeah, like, that's, that's beautiful to me because um, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm having a, you know, some whiskey and talking about him, you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. 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 We're, you know, like, it's, it's just like, it's like that, that dichotomy. It's like, we're all messy and we're all have our vices and we all have our things. And like, I love the way that chance the rapper kind of puts that out into the forefront. Right. You know? And it's like, I, you can't really label it Christian rap necessarily. Right. Um, or maybe you can, I, 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 maybe he's even said that. Uh, I think he's actually even tweeted that before. Like I'm a Christian rapper actually. But no one puts him in that category because he's such a well-rounded storyteller um, and just his music resonates on so many different levels. Like, he can have How Great Is Our God with Jay Electronica and then have yeah. a song with Justin Bieber. Yeah. And it's like, it all, somehow it all makes sense. Another one. And it all works together. It's just like, it's crazy. And he's someone that I'm really drawn to a lot because, uh, for obviously, for the reasons I mentioned, but also just how he is like in interviews and stuff like you, you, it's hard to find an interview where he doesn't talk about like fatherhood. Yeah. Um, and I just love the way, like a lot of like the young, uh, I shouldn't say a lot. Some of the young artists that are fathers, like are very vocal about their fatherhood. Right. And like, I just love that because when I was growing up, the, the music where we did talk about fathers, it was, it was in a negative way. It was chat, you know, chastising them or calling them out for never being there. And like now, it's a completely different conversation and it's like these artists are now the ones that are fathers and like with families and wives and stuff. So yeah. the music is changing as hip hop gets older. It's the people that practice it get older and they mature and they don't talk about the same things, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it's beautiful because it's like, you think of like bands like the Rolling Stones and stuff like you know, still trucking, man. They're yeah, like, yeah. I don't know how yeah. old Mick Jagger is. Oh man, he's old. But it's like, yeah, but it's like, <laughs> It, I think that's what's going to happen with rap where a lot of people say, oh, it's it's a young man's game. And I guess in a lot of ways it is. But Jay-Z is still on top of his game. Like his last record was one of his best. Yeah. And he's talking about completely different things than he was talking about in his first album when he was 25 years old. Right. Because he's gotten older. Yeah. You know, so as I love the way that hip hop has matured and the content is taking on just like all these um going on in, in all these different directions and it's beautiful to see and, and that's one thing I really love about Chance the Rapper he's re super well-rounded and super young to be doing the things that he's doing I love it yeah he's just he's a great like uh, I mean on a just a, like a humanitarian level he's great he's given back so much to his home city and his home state yeah and on a you know a fatherhood level that you talked about he's constantly talking about fatherhood and then just from spiritual he he's somebody that i guess i would say he is not afraid to be the best version of himself in whatever capacity that means yeah. he's he doesn't care like if you're not spiritual don't care I feel this way, so I'm going right. to put it out. I don't care if you're not a father. I am, and I'm proud of that, and, and so on and so forth. And it's just, it, yeah. it is odd in a good way 
how somebody is able to be that holy, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Fully realized is is the the phrase I heard recently about used to describe uh, describe chance, and it was very apropos. I, I just it was great. Uh, to that point, a little bit, you talked about in your book about m- midway through that you talk about one of your greatest fears uh, that being a father, something you'd always wanted, would require that you give up your quest to become a major artist. In short, to do what you loved to tell the stories that moved you and, and you, you compare that with your, I believe I don't have the reference pulled up. I believe it was your grandfather that did, that was the painter. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so, and, and you felt that he kind of sacrificed his passion for the family because that's what he needed to do. He needed to provide for his family. And, and that was your, a little bit of your fear was that you were going to be like him or maybe not him, but in, in some ways and that you were going yeah. to still have a full life as a dad and as a parent and enjoy that. But you would feel a little empty. You, you describe it as dying a, a small death every day almost. Mm-hmm. And so I want you to, to kind of talk about how you've been able to not forfeit your art and still be the father that your kids need on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, and it's no secret that becoming a parent, you have to, you, you make sacrifices. Yes. So it's not to yeah. say like yeah. you drop everything and just like pursue your dreams or anything. But it was right. like when I first became a father, I was, I was young. I was, I think I was 23 when I got married. Um, we had our first when I was, uh, 26 or 27. Um, so I was still relatively young with, with, a with eyes wide and, you know, yeah. full of dreams and ambitions and things that I wanted to accomplish. And, and to me, looking back on, yeah, like you mentioned, my grandfather, like he was this incredible painter. Um, and there, he has like dozens of paintings that are kind of spread out um, in the family. My uncle is actually, uh, his son is actually a painter as well. My, oh, my awesome. family is like a lot of, a lot of painters and, and some writers and stuff too. Um, but I always, even as a young kid, like I, I just admired like his art and just uh, my grandfather's just personality and the way that he carried himself. He was obviously a lot older at that time, you know, when I was, you know, when I was in the picture, but as I got older, I started, the more I learned about him and, and, um, just his art and the ambition that he had as a young man who had like a big family, he had like six kids. Um, he had to, you know, especially, you know, in Colombia and my, you know, my grandmother, they lived on like a farm and stuff and, and she stayed with the kids and he had to work very, very hard and so he wasn't able to kind of put the passion that he had for his art out there in the way that you can these days. You know, like we live in, enti- in an entirely different era um, where you can have three and four jobs. You know, this right. is like the freelance, you know. Yeah, yeah it really is. <laughs> the, the freelance generation yeah. is just like all side hustles. You know, yeah, yeah. there's been times where I've had like four jobs. <laughs> you know, it's like one job for each kid. Right. Uh, is what I used to joke about. But um, so – you know, early on, because I, I come from a music background and, and obviously I cover some of this in the book, being, you know, being signed to a label and having to tour. Um, and this is when we had one and, and two kids is when I was kind of touring more heavily. And it was like, oh, daddy has to go for two weeks, you know. And as yeah. I got old, as I got a little older and more into it, like I, that traveling uh, wasn't as fulfilling as it once was because I didn't like leaving my family. Right. Um, so there were those sacrifices that I had to make. But at the end of the day, like I always, I always wanted to be a writer 
and music is something that kind of just took off first. It was kind of like my second dream that ended up um, taking off, um, you know, a little more where I didn't have time to like really write like stories and stuff like that anymore. Um, so when I stopped touring, um, I had more time to really like invest in like what my first passion was. Um, and that's when I started, you know, writing full time for different magazines and stuff. But that was kind of more in line with what I always wanted to do is just be home and sitting in the dark and <laughs> staring at a blank <laughs> computer and like smoking cigarettes and getting mad. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so like that's kind of always what I wanted to do. So for me, it, it kind of worked out in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did have to make a lot of those sacrifices and, and had I, had I not stopped doing music, I, I don't know where it would have gone. Yeah. Maybe it would have fizzled and I would have just gotten tired of it in some other fashion, or maybe it would have taken off who knows. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, parenthood comes with sacrifices and, um, I'm fine with that, but I didn't want to give up everything that I wanted to do because I knew that I would only end up angry. Um, yeah. And, and just bitter that I wasn't able to do the things I wanted to do. And above all that, like, um, I also feel like you're teaching your kids a lesson in that as well, is that, that they can go after everything that they want in this life, you know? And yeah, they're going to be sacrifices they have to make along the way and, and speed bumps and stuff. But like, ultimately, like that was a lesson that I kind of wanted to pass on is like you pursue your passion until the very end. Now that doesn't mean that that keeps the lights on. Maybe you pursue this passion while you have a regular job, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. but you, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you don't stop painting. Right. Um, you know, you don't stop building and making the thing that you want to make because you have a family. Yeah. Um, if anything, you bring your family into that. Like I remember when I first, you know, was having kids, an older couple that I knew, uh, was, T telling me and just giving me game about how like when they were when they became parents like they didn't adjust their lifestyle completely to their kids they made their kids adjust to their lifestyle so they would bring them out to the parties that they went to 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 all the gatherings <laughs> yeah. i'm sure they drew a line somewhere but right. like the, the you know <laughs> the point was you know the point was that like you have to you you have to make adjustments but you don't you know you don't ruin your life <laughs> right right in the process you know there's yeah. some balance with that and you have to use wisdom and every person and every family is different right uh, but but yeah and and i think that that's so true it's you want to have you want to have a balance where you are adjusting and accommodating your life for your kid but at the same time they're fitting into your life as well so it's it, it's almost a compromise I, I feel like a lot of times where you you end up running into some problems or at least the, maybe not problems. And, and to your point, everybody's different. Every situation is different, but yeah, a lot of situations I've seen where people have struggled is if they do one or two extremes where they either adjust their life entirely for the kid or yeah. if they don't adjust their life at all. And it's it, somebody ends up kind of feeling more excluded than most and I think finding a way to balance all of that, that in a way that works best for you is, is hundred percent key as to what you're saying. Yeah. And this is, this is kind of, this is semi related, but <laughs> you just reminded me of something like a few months ago, a friend of mine, um, he wanted to, to get together and, and a couple, a few of the guys just go out 
He's, so he calls me. He's like, yo, we're going to go out. We're going to have a dad's night out. <laughs> and to me, like, <laughs> that was like the most depressing thing I ever heard. I was like, yo, what the hell are you talking about? What does that mean? He's like, we're going we're gonna to go out. Because like, you know, like 80% of my friends are fathers. You know? Right. But it's like, yo, do we really have to call it dad's night out? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just like, and I make fun of it. I make fun of him all the time about that. You know, yeah, you can just um, go out. <laughs> yeah, just like you know, girls have girls' night out and guys have guys' night out, or you know, whatever. Right. You don't have to say. You don't have to be so specific. Where it's like guys, dad's like dad's night, night out. out. Yeah, like, it was, sounded so depressing, and I was like, wow, I'm so washed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I... Dad's night out. Uh, but yeah, but the point was that is that is that like more and more men are like seeing. Um, I, I knew there was a there's some kind of point to it. Right. <laughs> Like how men are like young fathers are more and more seeing fatherhood as part of their identity. Right. You know, and it's not so much like I'm just a person with a kid, but oh, I'm a father, you know. Right. So like my friend, even though I make fun of him for it, like that to me was just communicating this idea that like that's such a central part of our identity. Right. Um, being fathers and like all of that, all of what that entails, that he would even use it in such a. <laughs> in such a way that I wish he wouldn't. Use, right. But, yeah. But I can understand why. Like that was like an, an, an inclination that that made him use that word. Right. Right. <laughs> oh man, it's it's okay. I feel in a similar way. I always uh, and you know I don't know where you stand on this, so I'll try and couch this. But I always cringe when people say, "I just got to get him his man cave." I go, "Oh, yeah. oh Lord, oh." Are we Neanderthals? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of lame too. I'm, I'm just like, I'm just like, you can have an office. Like everybody can have an office. You can have your space. Nothing wrong with that. But do we yeah. really need a designated a cave? Ooh. Yeah. But that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I'm with you on that. Okay. <laughs> it makes me feel like I, I got to go hunt some food and then like drag it back to my cave <laughs> to eat. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Don't go in there, Dad. He's eating a uh, a lion or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> like I'm bringing back a lion. I don't know. All right, I'm really off base here. Okay, let me let me bring us back in. Um, uh, you're talking about, you know, how you like we're talking talking about sacrifices and ways we're adjusting our life for our kids and, and, and making it work, finding the balance, you know, talking all about finding the balance. And you talked about giving up music, wanting to be a writer, and you've got a chapter about how your, I'm trying to find the specific passage here. It was, it was, uh, you talk about your relationship with, with your wife, Reagan, and how you said, uh, all, all that you'd suffered over the last years, the shouting matches and the bitter nights had brought our marriage to the ground. I accepted that the only way to salvage the relationship was to move. We packed the truck, said our goodbyes, and headed 2,000 miles northwest to Missouri, where my in-laws lived. Now, I was very impressed by this passage. For one, you were very open and honest about the relationship and the struggles, the real struggles that couples have on day-to-day basis but don't share yeah. because they feel the need to put on a perfect picture because everybody's trying to put forth a perfect picture instead of an honest picture. But what made you stay in your marriage as opposed to calling it quits? Because a lot of people would have called it quits in that situation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And just, just to kind of a sidebar on that, like sure. in terms of like just the honesty and, and having to be transparent. I mean, I had to, I had to be responsible and tell a complete story, you know? Right. Yeah. And so I couldn't just talk about like the darkness of things I experienced as a kid and not like, 
also bring the adulthood issues, you know, into the yeah, picture as well. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, in the trajectory of the story talks about just like touring and traveling and like that kind of lifestyle can definitely have a strain on a marriage and stuff. So like when, when we were getting to the point where we were having a lot of issues in, in the marriage, some of that stemmed from like touring and like always having to like work and just being, uh, being frustrated um, and, and other things that kind of came into play or whatever. But like, yeah, I mean, there was a point where I felt like I just needed, we needed to get away from everything that was familiar. And my father-in-law is like a hero to me. Like he's like, he's kind of like that, that, uh, that man I strive to, to be and to emulate in a lot of ways. Sure. And so kind of like the first thing that we decided to do was what well, we need to be closer to them so we can just be surrounded by just like their advice and their wisdom and just like their presence just in general. Cause they just have such an incredible marriage. Like I think, I mean, they talk about how they've argued in however many years they've been married, which is like 40 or something like that. Like yeah. they've fought like two or three times. Oh, like, wow. That's, I can't, I can't relate to that. Right. They're just way too similar. <laughs> right. Um, you know, but there was a point where we just felt like we needed to get away. Um, and so I had an, another friend to answer your kind of come back closer to your, to your question. I had a friend who was also going through issues and, he, t he talked about using the kids as leverage and oh, yeah. um, what that meant was because we talk about, you know, you hear about people staying in marriages for the kids and that can ultimately lead to things getting worse um, yeah. in a lot of situations. Um, and so this is not what he, that's not what he was saying. He was saying using the kids as leverage, meaning stay in it for the kids first and then work on the marriage. Oh, I see. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's okay. kind of like I a gotcha. stepping stone where like we, we have to do this for our family. We have to do this for the kids, but we're going to work on the marriage as well. So it's not just like stay in it for the kids yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. it and then suffer silently right. in the marriage. Right. No, it's, it's using this first thing as kind of like, again, that stepping stone to kind of get to that next level where your love is like renewed or, or you know, however you want to put it. Um, so kind of that's pretty much what that was we got away from everything that was familiar had no friends it was like literally the loneliest time of my life being um you know moving to missouri we were there for 18 months you know and we found a house with cheap rent and i could be a writer right <laughs> you know and uh i knew we weren't going to stay there too long but it was we stayed there until we felt like we were ready to kind of go back home because you know south florida miami kind of became home to my wife as well that's where our friends were sure all the people that she grew up with, you know, they weren't really a part of her life in the way that they were when she was growing up, obviously. Right. Um, so we went back home and, 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 and things got better and better. So, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah it, it, and it, it's, it's a good point that you bring up talking about your friend and, and also talking about yourself and that I find that's a good, if I had to t kind of re, not rephrase it, maybe reframe it a little bit for, for listeners. It, it's almost in the sense of you say, look, what, for whatever reason, our relationship is currently not working, but we want it. Yeah. We are committed to working it out or to working yeah. together. So let's focus on just co-parenting together. Let's be the best parents we can be for the kids working together, establishing that like teamwork dynamic. And then also let's work on our relationship, but let's give ourselves a good goal to focus on first. And then, as we're doing that and we're getting to a good rhythm, we're like, all right, let's work on our relationship so we can strengthen that aspect of it. And then we're all working together back where we need to be. 
That's exactly it. And you sound like a marriage counselor right now. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, my dad yeah. is one, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. There it is. Yeah, man. <laughs> that's good. Um, one uh, one aspect. I know this is a little bit jumping backwards a little bit. We're kind of been jumping around all the book, but it's because I got a lot of points and trying to weave it in. But you talk about you you reference this several times in your book. You call it the sadness, and you can. You know, some people can equate that with depression. Some people can equate that to just feelings of loneliness and helplessness. Or I think it's different things for different people. And so I really appreciated that you kind of called it the sadness and people can take from that what they need to take from that. But you talk about the fact that days carried on. And this is before I want to say this is before the move, uh, if I have my notes correct. The sadness grew more frequent where before your spells of depression were scattered now they lingered and increased in strength you'd never heard of men having postpartum depression but it seemed probable little sleep and unfilled desires piled on like toxic waste and you found but even though so you talk about and i'm kind of skimming down here you often found it difficult to leave the bed on some days however you found joy on better days in your son's laugh writing recording making love quiet dinners at home and I really appreciated that open and honesty because I feel, and and this is something that I know a, a lot of people, uh, myself included, have, you know, and I think it's natural for, for fathers as well to feel this on a day-to-day basis. I feel it's a lot more common than people give it credit for, this feeling of sadness, postpartum depression, whatever you want to call it, but people don't don't speak to it because they have this idea that i got to remain strong and, and put this fa- facade on. But it's true in that you feel this kind of emptiness and it's hard to pull yourself out of that. But you talk about finding joy in the in the quiet moments and and this yeah. is ultimately kind of what preceded the move. And I think I would like to I'm gonna draw this conclusion. You can tell me if I'm incorrect, but it seems that you step one was recognizing you're in the sadness. Step two is recognizing what helps me break out of that. What are the things that I can use? And I think it's not one big moment. It's a lot of little things that you're able to stack on top of each other to the point where you look back later. And, and it sounds like you were able to do this, look back later and go, I'm still struggling with this at times, but overall, overwhelmingly, I feel better than I did when I was in this low point. Yeah. I mean, and I didn't, and, and it's, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's, I mean, we're in a time now where people are being a lot more vocal about depression and mental health. And, right. um, you know, that's one of the things that social media is good for and bad for. It's it's bad in the sense that it kind of magnifies it because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people and right. their so-called wonderful lives. But at the same time, it also gets more information out there about uh, people who are struggling with it. Right. So it's kind of like there's two sides to it, you know. Right. It's depressing looking at people's lives, but it's encouraging seeing people that are being transparent right. about their own struggles, um, you know, with depression. And that's something it's something that kind of runs in my family. Like there's a, uh, my grandfather who, you know, we've talked about. He was actually bipolar. I have an uncle um, who's also an artist and painter who's also bipolar, um, which I write about in the book. So like that yeah. has some um, there's some family history with that. And I mine never got. Um, that deep but it was always easy for me to sympathize with people who felt like this crippling uh crippling depression because even though mine wasn't to that level like there were spurts where it felt very strong and some of that 
you know, it's, you know, maybe genetic. Some of that is right. maybe tied to creativity and just, just the burden of the artist to like get their work done and, you know, not to romanticize. Right. No, but I know what you know, you're saying. Art and, and depression and stuff, but there are, there are like scientific connections you right. know, with these kinds of things. But, um, you know, I, I just remember recognizing, and for me, it was important to not always call it depression. I felt like I wanted to kind of give it, give it a different name, at yes. least in my own context. And that's why I called it the sadness and capitalized the S because it was almost like its own persona. It was yeah. it's almost like a person, like when you, when it comes on, it, it's very strong and it's, it's got its empowering uh, or not empowering, but overpowering yes. you know, qualities, Yes, you know? So for me, it was, it was really important to kind of talk about that and, and, and shed light on some of the stuff that I, that I went through actually remember what your question was i just kind of just no it's okay it was uh it was more of like a yeah no it was more of a talking point and it's and it's yeah and you kind of took us through that through that journey of of realizing it but was there uh i guess to kind of bring it back around was there a specific point where you have been able to since kind of that low low point been able to look back and think okay i've my my positive my good days outweigh the bad days so to speak my good moments outweigh the bad moments and i feel that I've got it. I know it's it is naive of me to say if you got it under control because I don't I don't believe that one ever gets it under control. It's more of a, yeah. am I able to recognize it better and counter it, so to speak. So has have you been able to kind of set yourself up for success in those ways? Yeah, I think so, and I think a lot of it is just keeping myself busy. I mean, um, I. You know, before this book, I, I had been writing for a long time and stuff, but it was always these like 800 words, 1500 word essays and articles and reviews and stuff where they weren't like these really, really big projects. Right. And so when when uh, when we sold the book and I had this huge project ahead of me, it was something that I had to work toward. Um, and so it kept me very busy all the time. And there were some very trying times where I was like, how in the hell am I going to do this? This is this is way bigger than me. Um, but I also found like just for my own personality, like it was important to have something larger to work towards right. as opposed to just like shorter assignments and stuff like that, which I'd been used to. And so to answer your question, I mean, I think keeping busy and, and doing things that make you happy, um, like worked for me. Um, I can't, you know, pretend to understand what works for other people because again, everybody's situation sure. and yeah. the severity of their issues you know, is, is greatly different. But like, for me, it's always been like keeping myself busy with different projects or like with family stuff. And it's like, when you, when you have too much time alone, sitting around by yourself, like you can go into like dark places and like, you have to like turn off the like radio head and like stop sulking and right. <laughs> turn, turn off creep. So, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, turn off the nickel back just for a second and, and live or, your life. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, it's just been all about like keeping keeping myself busy, um, and That's constantly good. having like things that I'm trying to like do. Yeah. Um, which that can also be, that can also be kind of a trap in and of itself. Yeah. You feel like you always have to accomplish something. Right, right, right. So I don't know that I really have a right answer. I think it's just like, it's just intuitive. Like you just kind of live your life and yeah. you figure out what works for you from week to week. Right. I think it's. I think it's. It's important. It's something that I'm I'm constantly working on as well as trying to figure out what works best for me, and something that I was having this conversation with my uh, friend uh, 
Marvin the other day and we were talking about like how how are we able to kind of combat this and 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 stay productive but not burn out and and I talked about and yeah. for him he was talking about like I always if I go and I work out I feel good no matter what it is if I take an hour and I work out every day I'm like that's great for me and I was talking about I'm I'm like I'm very like uh, analytical in a lot of ways and so I said yeah. I've got it broken down into into tiers. For me, so it's like number one. If I if I've you know I gotta feel like I'm very productive and engaged, so I'll like you know work on the podcast, do some editing, do some create some like hardcore creating stuff, and then it's like yeah. all right, I feel like I want to do a little bit less. So it's like all right, I've got a couple books that are give me deep dives. Like I've been reading Rap Dads, and I'm also been reading We Were Eight Years in Power by Tennessee Coates. And, oh, man. Yeah. And so yeah, it's like, you know, phenomenal. that it gives me good stuff to chew on mentally. And so it's just like, for me, it's like I need my brain stimulated, whether that's creating, whether it's reading. And some days I recognize it's like, I would love to do that. My brain kind of wants to be stimulated, but I'm too exhausted. So it's like, I recognize today I'm going to put on a show and I'm going to veg out and then I'm going to go to bed, you know, or whatever the case may be. And it's like, I think it's just understanding what you can do and recognizing your limitations and recognizing like, I want to do this, but I can't, or I don't really want to do this, but I know I need to and kind of figuring out where it works for you and whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really good. And I mean, you just mentioned that we, we were eight years in power and he starts off that book talking about, I think even the first sentence is like, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, He's like, it started the way it always starts with failure or yes. something like that. Yes, yes, about, yes, yes, yes. He, he talks about the tra- – basically go, he goes into the kind of the trajectory of his writing career and how it all started with failure. Right. And to me, like that resonated with me a lot when I read the book because like fear and failure have been like very big motivating factors for me. Right. Like fear – not fear in the, in the negative sense where I'm where I'm scared like on some Freddy Krueger. Actually, that's not that's not scary. Actually, <laughs> Don't I go to sleep. That's not scary. Uh, yeah, As, but fear in the sense of uh, doing things that are so called or that you might think are outside of your comfort zone or your you know way above your limitations and stuff. And to me, like this book was something that I was very passionate about the idea. And, you know, had a proposal together, had the whole thing, and I'm ready to do this. And then you sell the book, and it's like, I'm engulfed with fear now because, sure. oh, now I have to actually do this. Right, right, right. And I got to see <laughs> it know? through. Yeah. You know, and so there's been a lot of instances in the past, you know, three or four years where I've taken on things that I had no idea how in the world I was going to do it. Right. But because I put myself out there, I, 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 I put myself in, in a position where I, I had to step up and really stretch what my limitations were and and you surprise yourself like we're we we're capable of doing a lot more than what we think we're doing right or uh, sorry a lot more than what we think we're able yes. to do yes um and there's been multiple times where i've i've been able to prove that to myself and that's not like tooting my horn it's just no, to yeah. say that like as human beings like we're capable of taking on a lot more than we think we can take on. Right. And, and to me, that's been a motivating factor for me is just like overcoming that fear and doing something that's just terrifying. Right. Absolutely. One last question I've got for you here. And then I've got a couple questions that people sent in if, if you're good with that. And then we're going to wrap, uh, wrap this up. But, uh, you know, talking about the fact that we can do so much, we can do so much, we are capable of so much more than we even believe we are. Uh, you've got a great passage talking about uh, you're talking about how we treat our daughters 
And, uh, you know, you've got this great passage talking about one thing I've noticed is how we as men tend to treat our small daughters like delicate princesses, soft as feathers over and over again. And you basically, to paraphrase, talk about how we're treating them this way. And then we, you know, it's like, it's no wonder that maybe they're getting the wrong message from us. So while, and you talk about how you, I'm trying to pull this, that you become more cognizant about the language you use when affirming your daughter. Beauty is merely one of her attributes. And I, and I would argue the least important. I need her to know that while she is certainly stunning, she's also strong, fast, intelligent, tenacious, and capable of doing anything her brothers do. And that, was so powerful to me because I have uh, uh, two kids. I have a daughter and a son and I approached my daughter in the exact same way. And I was essentially screaming at the book. Yes, yes, yes. When I was reading that, because I feel a hundred percent that way. It's like you want them to get the right messaging and, and you, you know, we spend a lot of time wrapped up in and telling them how beautiful that they are. It's easy to not reaffirm their other more maybe arguably more important attributes so to that point can you speak to the more quote-unquote evolved way of fathering and treating our daughters that you put forth and why some people might actually be resistant to that change yeah i mean it's it's funny because i mean gender dynamics continue to change and yes this whole idea of, of like the damsel in distress and like this woman that's just constantly waiting for a man to come rescue her and all that like to me like that's just so tired and so outdated and and it's like our culture has grown so much and it's more it's closer to how it always should have been now granted there's a lot of things that still need to change and we have to make a lot more strides but like that's something that i really try to be mindful of uh like you mentioned as, as far as the passage in the book when i'm affirming my daughter and just making her realize that she can do anything that again that, that her brothers can do like right and when when my when my relatives are around my daughter um you know and, and they're lying and they're always just like oh you're so beautiful and look at your hair and like my princess and all this and i'm just like like rolling my eyes like yeah. agreeing with them but it's like yo like everything that they're complimenting her on is just on like that exterior and like yeah. she's so much more than that and i know they don't mean any harm by sure. it sure yeah they're 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 you know they're they're affirming her they're saying nice things and i do love that and i appreciate and i do it as well but it's like when she's outside playing and she falls am i gonna just go and just like coddle her oh my god oh my god oh my god right and, but when my sons fall like i don't do that like yo right. get up like yeah i can tell that you're fine Right. If they break their leg, like <laughs> obviously, I can, I can. It's a different situation, but yeah. like, it's just we we're in a culture where I see so many men just constantly treating their daughters like these princesses that are just these glass houses that are so fragile, and it's like they're not that, and right. I don't think they want to be treated that way. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, and I talk about a friend of mine um, in the book, my a friend of mine named Nick, that like he puts his daughters in like all kinds of sports, like. You know, they're playing soccer, they're doing karate, they're doing like all these different things. And he's, it's just like, it was really inspiring for me to see early on because when he, he has two daughters and um, when he had his first daughter, like I only had, I had two boys. So like seeing the way that he treated his daughter and the way that he just like spoke strength into her and, and just affirmed her in a lot of different ways. I was like, wow, I've never seen a man father a little girl this way right you know and it was like it was very 
like instructional to me. And I didn't know I was going to have a daughter at the time. Yeah. But when I did, you know, I remember thinking back on like those moments of like, wow, this is one of my best friends. Like, look at the way that he's raising his daughters. And it's like, that was, it was, it was very telling to me and it was very educational. And I kind of put a lot of those things into practice and, and, and our culture is changing. And I think yeah. it, it needs to go more in the direction of how it always should have been, which is treating human beings as equals and, right. and, and yeah. You know, it was, um, it was interesting. This is a side note. I, uh, was trying to find the source for it and I couldn't. And uh, if I find out, put in the show notes and if I don't, then you'll just have to take my word for it listeners. But, uh, I, uh, came across a study before, or it was when my wife was pregnant with our, uh, with our daughter, who's our oldest child. So this is about three or so years ago, three or four years ago. And the study said that they took, they were trying to test gender norms and how people approach babies and they're babies, right? They all do the same thing. And they had 10 girl babies and 10 boy babies. And they put pink onesies on the boys and blue onesies on the girls. Oh, and this is what it was. They had, they had 30 babies. They had 10, 10, 10. And then the last group they put, they put them in, uh, in green onesies. So no one could tell what gender they were. And they found that the, they approached the boys in the pink onesies like girls and were extra gentle and kind and wouldn't let them down and let them, you know, they were like crawling, crawling age. And then the other ones, they were like, ah, let them be rough, do whatever. And then they found it was like two extremes. And then the last group of babies, they found that when they didn't know what gender they were, they just interacted with them normally. However, they would normally interact with a baby. No presuppositions, no anything. It was, it was more balanced across the board. And that struck with me to go, yeah, we really have got to work hard to just combat a lot of these stereotypes. And, you know, you can't, you can't speak for other people and and they don't mean harmful, but I think it, it starts at home. You control the narrative at home and then you set your children up for success when they go out into the world to know, yeah, I'm beautiful, but I'm also strong, fast, smart, witty, everything else. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like for me, like so this is like this is like extra. <laughs> but <laughs> like I always wanted a sister growing up cuz in my house it was four boys. Sure. And I remember from an early age like I I, I just for whatever reason like I just I wish I had a little sister. And I always thought it was cool when my friends had little sisters. And even though they were like annoying <laughs> to, to, their, to their older brothers, like I always wanted one. And um, I don't talk about this in the book because this is stuff that happened um, afterwards. But I actually found out when I was like 16 years old um, that I had a half sister. Oh, really? After my parents. Yeah, my parents split up and my father moved to Columbia. He end, ended up getting remarried. And um, when I went to visit in Columbia, I found out um, I was told that I had a sister. Oh, wow. She was three years old. And for so many years, I tried to find her. Um, and this was obviously before Facebook and Twitter and all these yeah. different things where you could find someone so easily. Um, I tried to find her for so many years and I never could. Wow. Um, and this, I mean, we're talking about years because no one even knew where my, my father was to find that out. And he didn't know where she was because right. he ended up getting divorced to, from her mother. <laughs> but my sister and I connected actually um, about six months ago. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So like, it's just talking about just the relationship between, you know, boys and girls and men and women. It's like now, like we have a relationship and this is something that I'd always wanted and I'm 37 and I didn't get to have a sister until, yeah. until now, you know, but j- 
just all I, I'm glad I know everything that I know now. Um, and just like having a daughter and like knowing how to treat a sister and I'm, I can't come into her life and be like, yo, who are you dating? You know, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. we, want, you know? yeah. we haven't, we haven't built that yet, but it's just been amazing. It, it's been an amazing experience. Like having that relationship, like she's already come and visit us. We are, we talk all the time and it's like, this is something that I, that I'd always wanted. Yeah. And it all came from like just putting myself out there and asking my mom so many questions to the point where she had to like play detective and it's like, all right, I need to find this dude's father and then yeah. he, he, he needs closure. <laughs> yeah, or, like, yeah. He has questions and like through a series of conversations, her finally tracking down my father and then finally tracking down his ex-wife and tracking down his daughter, my, you know, my half sister, like I'm able to have like this brand new relationship. Um, so it's kind of semi-related to what we've been talking yeah. about, but she actually lives in, uh, what made me think of it is she actually lives in Dallas. Oh, really? Um, so right on. Uh, Shout out. Yeah. It's kind of cool, man. Yeah. Well, if you ever, uh, you ever come and visit her here, uh, let me know and we'll set up an in-person uh, episode. So. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. That's awesome. I wanted to hit you up with just real quick before we let you go. Cause I know we're a little over, so I apologize for that. But, um, uh, good friend of the podcast, Frank Minicon, who's a co-host of the quad podcast on Roberts media group. Shout out to them. He sent over a couple questions, uh, that he wanted you to answer. First of all is, who is on your Mount Rushmore of rap? So, oh, wow. So who are your four, like, pioneer, influential rap artists, hip-hop artists to you? <clears throat> okay, so I would say um, first, I say Nas in the book, but I would probably put him at a close tie with another rapper whose name is Fonte, who I also interview in the book, and he's part of a group called Little Brother. He's uh, he's, he's, I would say he's maybe just a touch above Nas as far as my favorite. So I'd say him, Nas, um, as far as like in, influence, I would say Fat Joe. Okay. Um, I'm all the way up. It's a big influence. Yeah. As, as a kid <laughs> growing up, um, and seeing like a Latin rapper just like be amazing. Um, and then fourth, I would say probably, um, Black Thought, uh, from The Roots. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that would be probably a, a, a top four. That might change next week, but right. I would say those are those are pretty consistent. That's awesome. A pretty consistent Mount Rushmore. That's awesome. Uh Frank did yeah. not ask me, but my favorite rappers are uh Chance the Rapper, uh Eminem, Macklemore, and then the fourth one would probably be Jay Z. That'd probably be oh, my, my yeah. fourth one. So how could I forget Jay-Z? All right. Okay. That's okay. I got you. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, another question, uh, that he sent over, uh, that I'll ask, he sent over a couple of, them. I'm just going to pick one more. He's got, how have you infused hip hop in your parenting style slash technique? Oh, that's awesome. So probably not directly, but I mean, because because I love hip hop and kind of grew up liking fashion to a certain extent, like I have an appreciation for like uh, sneaker. I'm not like a sneakerhead like I was at one point in my life. Like there was a time where I had like an orange pair of like high top suede Pumas, like just ridiculous. Hey man, like, that's awesome. Those, you know, but <laughs> yeah, but like I do have an appreciation for fashion, you know. Uh, and I would say like the the clothes that I bought my kids, you know, as they were just you know, starting to walk and getting a little older was definitely influenced by my own taste. Sure. So I, I would say like, those are ways that it's like, 
influence not that's not necessarily like the music but just like more of the culture yeah of hip-hop and like sneakers and like cool hats and you know like that kind of stuff but like my kids love my kids love hip-hop and like i don't realize how much they know until they come home from school like saying lyrics to songs i had no idea like, <laughs> you know who migos is like yeah yeah yeah, yeah they're singing rap songs that i have no idea Oh, that's about, awesome. And it makes me feel just old and washed <laughs> up, but it, it's crazy. Like, we play a lot of rap in the house, and, I mean, um, I'm not playing anything too crazy or anything, but right. um, it's definitely part of, like, our everyday lives, I would say, to an extent. Yeah, that's really cool. I uh, I also play some quite a bit of hip-hop to the point that uh, uh, <laughs> my uh, Marmalade comes on, just the opening – just the opening – piano and my uh, daughter gasps from the back seat <laughs> dad it's the marmalade song and i'm like awesome. yeah yes it is and then i'm like oh wait is this the clean version oh hold on a second <laughs> but yeah uh, my kids like like drake's like god's plan and oh so. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's awesome yeah all right cool 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 all right um well thank you so much what we like to do right here at the very end before we sign out uh i like to throw some dad jokes at the guest uh mainly because we are still uh you know we've got it's uh dad talks is in the title so i gotta throw in the dad jokes do you have any dad jokes that you would like to throw out oh my god bro <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, did you hear the joke about the butter no i didn't don't spread it. Wow. <laughs> that's that's bad. That's awesome. Uh hey, it's it's all good. You know the difference between a bad joke and a dad joke? Just one letter. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I get all right, all right. Oh, that's that's really bad. It's all right, I got some uh I got a I got one I've got a couple dad jokes, but I've only got one that is uh on theme, but I'll start with that one. Um why did Snoop Dogg grab his umbrella? Faux drizzle. <laughs> oh, oh. I thought that was good. Uh, well, what uh, I will uh, I'll end with this one. <laughs> what uh, what kind of weave do they sell at IHOP? Egg stenchions. <laughs> so bad. It's so bad. All right, I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw in one last one, last one, last one. Uh, what do you wow. call What do you yeah. call it? Yeah, well, I gotta, I gotta come, I gotta come prepared. Um, uh, I always, uh, yeah, I'm never, uh, I, I don't know. My kids always laugh at these. I test them out on them before I go on air, and they always bust out laughing. And my uh, wife rolls her eyes so, so much. I'm afraid they're gonna pop out of her head. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, I feel like that's my key demographic right there: Th- uh, four-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, but uh, what do you call a fat psychic? A fortune what? teller. F- oh god. Fortune. T- all right, all right, all right. All right, uh one uh if people want to follow you and keep up with everything you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Um Twitter and Instagram is just it's Juan Love, I T S Juan, my first name and L O V E. It's Juan Love. Cool. We will, of course, link to that and put that and tag you in everything for the episodes. That's awesome. And we need a hashtag for this episode. Should we just use hashtag rapdad? Yeah, sounds good. All right, cool, cool, cool. All right, listeners, thank you so much for sticking around. If you want to have your story told or you know of somebody that should have their story told, you can reach out to us. The easiest way to do that is to go to detoxpodcast.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast.com. 
You'll be able to email us, find us on all social media where we're at, Detox Podcast, and get in touch with me, Joe, the host. And uh, until next time, everybody, hashtag rap dad and hashtag be a better dad. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com.